no matter where you live, there's the possibility of experiencing some kind of bad weather. We lived in Maine for about 13 years, and since I was self-employed and could pretty much dictate my own schedule, I decided to work part-time for my town's EMS service. So I got trained in emergency response, and I was often called out when someone called 911 with a medical emergency or an injury, And usually, I was working with a paramedic who was pretty much in charge of the situation because they were more experienced. I would do whatever was needed to assist them and the patient, and a lot of times that meant I was driving the ambulance to the hospital while they took care of the patient in the back. There's one call I remember pretty clearly. This was in the winter, at night, and we had just had a big snowstorm, So the driving conditions were pretty bad. We got a call about a car accident. This was just a single vehicle crash. The person had lost control and run into a tree. We got there and found just one person, the driver, and she was still in the car with some broken bones. Her worst injury was her broken pelvis. She had what's called an open book fracture where the pelvis is broken into right and left halves. It's really painful, and she was conscious and experiencing all of it. We got her out of the car and into the ambulance, and I was not looking forward to this trip. It was still snowing pretty hard, and it was dark, so the visibility was poor, and the roads were slippery. And this is rural Maine, so the hospital was not close by. We had to get to the hospital down in Portland. In perfect weather, it was about a 30-minute drive. On this night, it took well over an hour. And that was some high-stress driving. I had to kind of creep along and make sure I stayed on the road and didn't slide off into the ditch. And there was the added pressure that this poor girl in the back was depending on my driving to get her to the emergency room. On top of that... She's lying on her back with a badly broken pelvis and every time I hit a bump in the road, she would scream in pain and I'd feel terrible because I hit that bump. We eventually got there, but that ride seemed to take forever. My guest today is Todd. He lives in Canada and he has seen his share of bad winter weather. He's also a truck driver So in a lot of cases, he finds himself driving his tractor-trailer in those conditions. Most of the time, it's no big deal. He's used to it. With poor visibility and slippery roads, everyone on the highway just keeps moving forward slowly and carefully, and eventually you get there. But there was one time he was driving during a bad snowstorm, and that slow forward movement came to a stop. And that's where he stayed. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My 
friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson. And this is What Was That Like? When this happened, you were fairly new to driving a truck. What attracted you to that kind of work? Kind of fell into it, actually. In high school, I took you know the trades and everything, and electrical and machine shop and automotive, and I just uh, got a job out of high school at a factory that my dad worked at, and it was paid good, so I kind of stayed there for 15 years, and I lost my job when they decided to relocate, and I didn't want to. And Like I said, it was kind of like a backup plan, I guess, and fell into it. There seems to be something, there's some kind of an attraction about having a job where you're, you're, you get to be by yourself, and you're just on the road. Is that, what do you like about that? The freedom, I guess, uh, is, uh, I mean, it, it gets frustrating at times, the way people drive and everything, but uh, just... Like my company is pretty good too. Like they tell you where you're going and you just, they don't ask you how, how, why it took so long to get there or why you went a certain way there. So it's, it's pretty good. You're kind of your own boss, I guess, in a sense. Are there any special skills involved in driving a truck on the highway as opposed to city driving? It seems like highway might even be a little easier since you just put it in gear and just go. Yeah, in a, in a way, yeah. Um, the city is definitely uh, more challenging to navigate around streets and cars and stuff. But, uh, I mean, the highway, eventually, you still have to uh, get off and go to a customer. So, but yeah, it's, it's probably much more difficult in the city all the time. And at, at this time, you were fairly new to driving a truck. How long had you been driving? I got my license in 2008, but I didn't really utilize it too much until 2009. And that was just like a kind of running trailers around the city. So it was... January of 2010 is when I started on the highway, and this this happened in, in December of 2010, so not even a year on the highway. Yeah, less than a year. And was your truck one of those that set up with a, a bunk behind the cab so you could overnight? Yes, I had a bunk in the back, yeah. And what kind of facilities do you have in that? I mean, is, there's a bed, obviously. What else do you have back there? Yeah, there's a bed, and then there's uh, there's heater controls that are attached like um, as, as it would be in the front, like a fan control and a temperature control. And then there's also, and that truck had a separate bunk heater, which is tied into the diesel fuel. And you just, it's a separate heater. So you don't have to, you don't have to have the truck running to get heat. Other than that, it's just cupboards and storage <laughs> in a TV, thankfully. <laughs> like, it sounds like a little, uh, a micro size apartment. Yes, it is. Yeah. And actually the, the truck I have now, it's a lot nicer set up and bigger, bigger space and everything. All right. Well, let's talk about this trip. You, you live in Canada. Yes. In, uh, in Ontario. So this, you started this trip in Brantford, Ontario, Canada, and where were you headed? I was headed to Port Huron, Michigan, which is like a, it should have been about a two and a half to three hour drive total. And the distance is, I think, like you said, around 130 miles, which would be 210 kilometers? Probably around there, yeah. All right. And what were you hauling? I was hauling little cardboard tubes. So it'd be the tubes that you see inside of uh, like your duct tape or your painter's tape or scotch tape um, they come in certain lengths or, or cut up short and so just not much weight whatsoever 
Yeah, so a fairly light load then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This trip involved three main highways. Yes. Take us through what time, this was on a Monday, what time did you start driving? I can't remember exactly what time I left, but I believe it was probably around four o'clock in the morning. Oh, so you get started real early then. Yeah, that, that customer at that time wanted us there early in the morning. It had snowed overnight, which was nothing, nothing unusual, I guess, for the wintertime. And uh, I just, I got on, as I got on the 403, I started noticing that the plows had gone through in one, in one lane, but it was just that type of snow that once the plow goes through or once the cars drive on it, it turns to almost like a sheet ice on top of the snow. <clears throat> so that was pretty uh, hectic, I guess, to navigate through that. I just took my time and, and that was the conditions for that, for that stretch. It was probably about a half an hour normal drive on that road. Did you ever consider not making that trip because of the driving conditions? I definitely did when I got on the highway, but the the problem is there's not really any very good place to turn around. <laughs> so like like all a lot of the on ramps you can't or off ramps you can't get off and turn around and go back the other way. And I just uh, I, I kind of crossed my mind I guess by just started trekking along. So as I hit the 401, which was in Woodstock, Ontario, the icy conditions were gone, but the the wind had picked up, and there was much more snow on the highway still. The plows had gone through, but they just they couldn't keep up with the amount of snow that was coming plus the drifting. So I'm, I, as I navigated down there, it was pretty much just the middle lane was clear. The right lane was kind of iffy. And then the left lane, the problem with that one was the plows had gone through, but then at certain points they stopped plowing. So people would go out to pass and then they'd be mid, mid pass. And all of a sudden there'd be like a big pile of snow, like not a pile of snow, but the like unplowed road in front of them. So <laughs> it was a couple, I think twice along that stretch, cars actually slid sideways beside me and I thought they were going to come into me, but they luckily saved it. I know people who live in cold climates are kind of used to driving in snowy weather and mm -hmm. bad conditions. Was there a lot of traffic on the highway? Um, that stretch on the 401, there, there seemed to be a lot more than, than usual. I don't know whether people had left early because of the storm or, or just people slowed down because of the storm. It kind of all got congested, but that is a busy, that is a pretty busy stretch along there too. Finally, you got to the third main highway. This is the 402. Um, as I got on there, it was pretty much just the right lane. It was uh, It was just, you could see like the tire tracks of cars and everything else was snow. And uh, just by the time we got to there, we were probably only doing like 40 to 50 kilometers an hour. And at the very start of it, there was, you know, a couple of trucks and a couple of cars passed. But then after that, it was just, it was pretty much single file the whole way till probably about 70 kilometers. It was just uh, like that pretty much. The fast lane was, I mean, it was, it was hard to tell what lane you're in at that point, but so there's, there's pretty much only one, one clear lane of traffic. So people, like I said, at, at the start of it, a couple of people got brave and, and passed some people, but then it was just, it was just too dangerous to try to go out there. As we navigated down the 402, I said, we the start of it, we're doing about 50, 60 kilometers an hour. It wasn't too bad and kind of got, I don't know, probably about halfway down and, and it was starting to slow down a little bit. And we got to around the, the 35 kilometer mark and, and we stopped and you know, there's trees on both sides of me. So it's kind of sheltered a little bit from the weather and we were stopped there for maybe five, 10 minutes. And then we moved again a little bit and stopped again. And we were stopped for about a half an hour. And I'm thinking, you know, going through my head, I'm thinking is, you know, is this it? Like, are we stranded now? Or, you know, you don't know what's, what's, what's happening. And then finally it started moving again. I thought, okay, we're, you know, we're good to go now. We're going slow. And well, I got about another five kilometers and it stopped again. And now this time I'm, have an open field beside me and the snow was just blowing across. They couldn't see the car in front of me when we were stopped half the time. Just kind of sat there for a while and uh, eventually I realized we weren't moving. <laughs> and 
And and with heavy wind, it, your truck is a big target. Was it kind of swaying, or how was it affected by the wind? Yeah, it was getting rocked. Like not, I was I was never in fear of it tipping over, but it was it was rocking it back and forth pretty much the whole day and night. The first night. In your truck, you've got a CB radio, right? Yes, what were yes. you hearing? What what other reports were you hearing from other people? Uh, when I first got stopped, you know, of course, everybody's asking, you know, what's going on, what's going on, and after a certain amount of time, we uh, determined that, that the highway wasn't moving, and so I could hear other truck drivers saying, "Oh, well, I'm on this road, and we're still getting through," and then another one would be, "Oh, I'm on this road, and I'm getting through," and and eventually it was, I mean, it wasn't funny, but it was kind of comical to hear just, just one by one, every road got shut down because, you know, somebody getting stuck in the middle of the road or going in the ditch and, and blocking a lane. And just over the course of the day, it just everything got shut down. And was that the actual reason for the eventual stop in traffic is because some car up ahead had spun out or got in a ditch and was blocking the road? To tell you the truth, I'm not exactly sure why we even stopped. Like when I, when I eventually got out, like I had to weave around a bunch of stopped cars, but I never saw anything blocking the entire road unless they'd cleared it out before I got there. But I, I, I think, honestly, I think just people got stuck in the middle of the road at some at some point in time. Maybe maybe got drifted in and they couldn't they couldn't go. And so I'm not I'm not exactly sure why we got stopped. The outside temperature must have been pretty cold. How cold was it inside your truck? I mean, you got uh, a heater. Yeah. So the pro- the problem was the uh, I had tr- had troubles with the heat in my truck the, the like the heat from the engine and i hadn't I hadn't had a chance to get it fixed so it was it was pretty cold in the front of the truck but i, I had my bunk heater cranked on and it was uh it, it, it was the bunk heater if i had it on like full blast it would cook you out of the truck like it, it worked really well and the, the first day i had it turned up more than normal just to keep warm but um but the outside it was i think it was only about minus 10 degrees celsius but with the wind i bet you it was minus 25 something like that were you in communication with anyone? Like you, you must have like a dispatch operator or somebody who who keeps track of where you are and things, right? Yeah. So I, I when we stopped, I think the first time, I, I kind of, I think I, I called my dispatch just to let them know that probably, probably originally I let them know that it's going to be late because the weather, obviously, and and then we got stopped, and I, I don't remember how uh, how long after we stopped that I, I let them know that you know we're stopped now, and I don't know when I'm going to get out of here or if I'm going to get out of here. And and, then, and my mom, obviously I let her know what was going on. <laughs> what did she think of this? She, at the first, she wasn't too, uh, too worried about it, but she, of course she started watching the news and seeing how bad it was. And she, she definitely wanted me to get out of there. <laughs> I understand there was a car in front of you. Every, everybody stopped at this point mm-hmm. and there's a car in front of you, which is a VW Jetta. Yes. What did you observe about that car? Well, when we first stopped, I think I sent you a couple of videos. It was blowing so hard you couldn't even see it at sometimes. And so I, I was sitting there, and you know I was spending some of, some of the time in my bunk because so I just kind of got bored. And I'd kind of peek out, and I, I started noticing snow drifts actually drifting up the side of the car. And so uh, after a while, I looked out, and, and the, the snow drift was actually almost to the roof of his car on the driver's side. So I thought, well, I may as well get out and see if they're okay. And so just just as I got out and got bundled up, they were getting out of their their car, and it was two businessmen in, in suits. <laughs> and they and, and they the driver crawled out the passenger side, so the three of us actually shoveled the snowdrift away, <laughs> so they wouldn't get buried. Of course, now that you got shovel the snow shoveled away, you still can't go anywhere. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was uh, and uh, you can see the pictures I sent you too. The the drifts were actually drifting around my truck as well, and 
and it was just after a while it was just it was impassable like there's no way anything can get through except for a snowmobile you at some point took some pictures and sent them to a local news channel yes so i uh after a while of sitting there i, I obviously got bored and stir crazy so i got bundled up and i started walking around and part of the reason i got out too is i was making sure some of the cars that were close to me had had water and, and heat and everything and so i started taking pictures and the local news channel that i usually watch i thought well i'll just send them pictures because they, they actually had a i forget what they called it now but they had they used to advertise for listeners to send in pictures of the weather like sunrises or whatever so i'll just send I had, I had no intentions of anything i just i just sent the pictures to say hey this is the pictures of what i'm going through and wasn't long after that they called or they emailed me, emailed me back and said, would you be interested in being on the news? So I said, oh, all right, I guess so. And that was, uh, when we got stopped in the morning, it was about nine something in the morning. So their first, I think they have an 11 o'clock news, but it was past that. So they asked me if I'd be on the six o'clock news. And then I was, I was on at 11 o'clock that night and then the morning show the next day. And that was kind of funny because, uh, another news channel contacted me cause they had seen me on, that network and asked me if it was, it wasn't TV. It was just a radio show. And they asked me if I would do a, 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 a segment for them. As soon as I did that segment for that one, the first news channel never contacted me again. <laughs> the OPP is strongly advising people to stay off the roads. Highway 402 is closed near Sarnia because of extremely snowy conditions. And there are reports that wind gusts reach 90 kilometers an hour at times today. Now the good news is the wind warning has ended for that area. The bad news Snow squall warnings continue. Right now, more than 500 drivers are stranded on the 402, and many have been there for more than eight hours. Todd McDougall, who drives a truck for a living and is a regular viewer of the Evening News at 6, sent in these pictures to us today. They were taken on the 402. He also joins us right now live by phone. And, Todd, I understand uh, you're stuck on the highway. How long you've been stuck? How much longer do you think it's going to be? Uh, I'm not too sure. It's, uh, it's been about nine hours now, and uh, I haven't heard any word uh, whatsoever of... Uh, any idea when we might be out of here? I, I would only assume um, now that we'll be here probably overnight. So, so, Todd, exactly what are you driving and what have you been doing for these nine hours then? I drive the tractor trailer. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of weight to uh, to help me when I was driving, but um, I've just been in the bunk here watching uh, DVDs all day and <laughs> listening to the chatter on the CV. Unbelievable. Now, how are you able to stay warm or can you keep warm? Do you have food? Do you have any supplies just in the event of something like this? Yeah, I've, uh, luckily I've got a bunk heater in the truck, and uh, I've had the truck running just to try to keep the windows defogged, and it's so windy and so cold, it's uh, it's hard to keep enough uh, temperature in the engine to, to actually heat the, uh, the inside of the truck. Um, as far as food and that, I usually have extra food and water, especially in the wintertime, just, uh, just in case of uh, something like this. So it's good that you're prepared. These pictures, Todd, I mean, we're just watching them come through on the screen. These are unbelievable shots. It looks like in some cases you've been parked there for so long that the snow is just sort of building up and blowing up all around you. I mean, has anybody moved? Any other drivers having any better luck than you? Uh, no, uh, as far as I can see, like the visibility isn't very good, but uh, I haven't seen anybody. I've seen a couple cars at first, the first couple hours, you know, sneak past in the, in the fast lane. But uh, from what I'm hearing, they didn't get very far. And, and uh as far as the accumulation goes, there's a little Volkswagen Jetta in front of me there. and I actually got out there a while ago and helped him dig out the side of his car. So it was actually almost to the top of the driver's window. The drift was piled up there. Yeah, we can kind of see that in a picture, actually, Todd, that we have up here now. We can see the Jetta you're talking about and how much mm -hmm. snow is certainly built up there. Now, what about the police emergency crews? Have you seen them? Have you heard from them? What are their efforts like? Um, the only two, I heard quite a while ago that they were, they were out on their snowmobiles and ATVs. And it wasn't until maybe 20 minutes ago I seen two snowmobiles go... Uh, 
the other direction on like going uh, they went east on the westbound lanes and i'm not sure uh, where they went to but they didn't stop here so has anybody been in touch with you to sort of let you know what's going on and what kind of efforts they're making uh no i just uh, always i mean mind you i haven't had the radio stations on but uh from what i hear the other truckers on the cb saying that uh you know there's different stories here and there but uh I'm not really hearing uh, anything uh, too promising. <laughs> so, Todd, do you have any sense at all as to when you might get out of there, or is it just a complete mystery to you? Yeah, a complete mystery. I've heard other guys saying, too, that the storm's supposed to last a Wednesday, so uh, hopefully not that long. But uh, like I said, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll be here the night at least. Yeah, certainly hope not. Okay, Todd, we're going to keep in touch throughout the evening, and uh, we'll try to get an update from you at 11, though I hope at that time you're uh, back home at least. But we'll check back with you. Thanks a lot, Todd. Okay, thanks. Okay. So here you are, you're in your truck all alone, but everybody nearby is hearing your voice. Yeah. Do you feel kind of like a celebrity a little bit? Uh, maybe for, for a couple minutes, I guess. <laughs> Wasn't very long lived, I guess. <laughs> Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. A little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com what code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida. So I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what 
or enter code WHAT before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code WHAT or going to cookunity.com slash WHAT. I was lucky I had a just a small TV in my truck with a port, uh, not a portable DVD player, but a small DVD player. And I had had it, I just bought the, uh, the DVD set for Seinfeld. So <laughs> I pretty much, uh, between watching outside and seeing the snow and watching Seinfeld, I kind of managed my time that way. <laughs> You're sitting there doing nothing. And so you watch a show about nothing. Exactly. Right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Were you concerned about running out of fuel? No, I had, uh, for some reason, I, I don't know why, but I, I'd gotten the idea of in the wintertime, I always kept it above half a tank just in case uh, something did happen. So thankfully, it was not a concern of mine. Uh, some some of the trucks on the CB, I could hear them when we first got stopped and a couple of guys were, were on there saying, oh, I've only got a quarter tank of fuel. Like, what am I going to do? And somebody else saying, I've got an eighth of a tank of fuel. I'm going to run out and I'm thinking, I just don't know why they wouldn't think to not put themselves in that situation. Yeah. And you're the rookie driver. And you're better prepared than these other uh, veteran drivers. Yeah, I was said by pure uh, pure luck, and actually, um, just I don't know, probably a month prior, I had uh, decided you know, I better stock I better stock up my truck with water and and canned food in case something happened. So I, I was all set for food and everything. <laughs> I could have stayed there for for a week. <laughs> <laughs> you were ready. Mm-hmm. What about when you had to use the bathroom? Does your truck have like a little toilet in it or anything? No, it doesn't. Some of the bigger ones, like the big, big, big ones do, but uh, most of them don't. So I got, I got lucky as far as the, the BM goes, but <laughs> um, anything else, I just, you know, I had to go outside and, and between, you, can, you can hide between the truck and the trailer so nobody can see you. But, this, but the cars, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, that's a, they were, they were in a, a pretty tough spot there. It would have been a long night and sitting in a little car. At what point did you realize I'm going to be here for the night. It's probably, probably around the time the news channel, maybe it's, I think, I think, I think in the news channel, they actually asked me, uh, uh, if I had any idea when I was going to get out of there. And I think at that point it was nine hours. And I think it was around then. I, I think I said to him, you know, just, uh, at this point, I can only assume we're going to be here for the night at least. And I just, I, I assumed that, um, the, you know, the morning would come and everything would clear up and we'd be out of there. But it was probably later on that day. Were you okay with sleeping overnight or was it warm enough in the truck? It was at first. Um, I, I definitely slept in the truck many times before, but, um, so I went to bed and I, you know, I had just regular bed sheets and, and I went to sleep and, uh, the, the wind was rocking the truck so bad. And, and, uh, I woke up, I don't know, partway through the night and I was cold and I couldn't figure out why. And I have a little alarm clock in my truck that has the temperature on it. It was, it was, it had gotten down to four degrees Celsius inside the truck because <laughs> the, because the front the front heat wasn't working good enough, and then the bunk heater was, wasn't turned up enough, so I, I had a, a thermal sleeping bag. So I ended up getting that, and I put all my clothes back on, put my toque on, and, and got in the sleeping bag and slept that way. <laughs> Four degrees Celsius—that's like thirty-nine Fahrenheit. So that's just barely above freezing, mm-hmm. and that's inside your truck. Inside my truck, yeah. So the the second day, I woke up, and I, sent, I think I sent you those pictures too. I opened up my curtains, and I actually had snow inside the truck. <laughs> It, because the heat, the heat in the front wasn't working enough to uh, to melt the snow, and the, and, the, and it was blowing so hard, it was blowing in, inside the truck. How was it getting in? I'm not sure if it was. It must have been coming through the vents, I guess, the, the fresh air vents. But the uh, and then part part of it must have been frost because the the passenger side window was completely frosted over on the inside, it, it, like to the point where it looked like snow. 
when I woke up Tuesday, I opened the curtains and it still wasn't letting up. Like the weather was just, it was just relentless. It was still snowing pretty much just as hard as it was the, the first day. I opened up, looked outside and, I, you know, at first there, there was nothing happening. Like there's just cars stopped everywhere. And certain part through the day, we started seeing, you know, the, the, na- the neighbors would, would hear, uh, find out what was going on and, and heard of the news that everything was shut down. And so they got on their snowmobiles and started coming around and checking on everybody. And, I'm thinking about everyone in their cars. It seems like the cars would run out of gas and people would just freeze to death with it being that cold. Was there any possibility of walking to somewhere or was the snow just too deep? It wasn't able to get through. Um, a little bit, a little bit of that. And the fact that the visibility was so terrible, like there, there was a bridge, I think maybe an eighth of a mile in front of me the whole time. And I didn't know that bridge was there till like partway through the second day. Like it was snowing and blowing that hard. You started hearing snowmobiles coming. Who, who were, who were those people? Some of the local, the neighbors and stuff, the, like the, the only house I could see was like a farmhouse on the other side of a field that was a ways away, but I'm assuming people seen the news and, and realized what was going on. So they, it was actually very nice. They, the people like I heard from other people that they brought sandwiches and water. And so the whole day was, was, you know, the locals buzzing up and down with the snowmobiles. And then I forget at what point in time in that day that the OPP started showing up and they started maybe midday, they started deciding they were going to uh, evacuate people off the highway. You were you talked to some of the people on snowmobiles and they offered you a ride out, right? Yes, uh, when I was out taking pictures the one time, the, the couple of them come by and they stopped and asked me if I if I wanted to get out of there. And, and I, you know, at that time, there was people in cars and they didn't have any supplies and heat like I did. So I I just told them, like, you know, I'm I'm good for a while. Like you know, worry about the people in the cars first because they they're obviously they have less room and they don't have food. And so I, I declined. Thankfully, declined their offer. <laughs> Yeah, if you're in a VW Jetta, you don't have a bunk in the back no. to, with a heater to <laughs> no. to spend the night. Yeah, not too not too comfortable. <laughs> right. Then you saw that the policemen were starting to show up, and they were on snowmobiles, right? Yes. Yeah, so they were they were running back and forth beside me, like up and down the highway, getting people off. And and I heard, I think the one picture I sent you of the helicopter. They had helicopters on because. The funny thing was too, the, the other side of the highway, there seemed to be hardly any cars stuck over there. So I don't know whether there was just less traffic or just the spot I was in, there was, there was no cars. But from what I heard, the helicopter was landing over there and taking people to churches and libraries and, and stuff like that to get them off the highway. Just evacuating. Yeah. Yeah. So of course I'm talking to mom and mom's watching the news and she's like, oh, they're, pl- they're planning on having everybody off the highway by the end of the day. So you should be, you should be safe by the end of the day. And I thought, okay. And. So I said the whole, the whole day was just like, it was like a, a buzz of bees, just snowmobiles running back and forth. And so I was out, I think it was, it was in the evening. It was close to not dark, but it was getting that, that close to that. And I was out taking pictures and a couple of OPP snowmobiles come up and they both had two seats on both the snowmobiles. And he's, they stopped and they, and they asked me like, what are you doing? I said, I'm just out taking pictures and whatnot. And he says, well, he says, we're evacuating everybody off the highway. And I said, okay. He says, he says, like, you have to, you have to leave. Like you can't, you can't stay here tonight. We're getting everybody off. And he said that there's two more OPPs. The uh, OPP is the Ontario Provincial Police. Um, he said, there's two more OPPs coming behind us about half an hour. We'll, we'll tell them to stop and get you. Just get in your truck, turn your lights on. So they know which truck you're in and they'll, and they'll get you. I said, okay. So I got in my truck and I sat there at least an hour, an hour and a half. And it was getting so cold because I was sitting in the front where the heat wasn't working. 
it was getting so cold. I thought, okay, you know what? I got to go warm up in the bunk. So I, I went and laid in the bunk and like literally two, three minutes after I got back there, I heard the snowmobiles coming. And by the time I got out of bed and in, in the front to try to flash my lights or whatever, they, they were gone. So <laughs> they, uh, I don't know if they, if they didn't get radioed to, to pick me up or if they didn't see the truck or I'm not sure why they didn't stop. And, uh, like I said, mom was watching the news and, and she, she, you know, she's telling me, Oh, everybody's going to be evacuated. And so I told her what happened there and, and she, you know, she's getting pretty, pretty worried. She, she definitely didn't want me on that highway the second night. And, Maybe you should have just told your mom, hey, I, I, I'm at a farmhouse. These people are taking great care of me. you got nothing to worry about. Yeah, I probably could have. Yeah. <laughs> Made it, uh, took, took the worry off of her a little bit. <laughs> so she was hearing reports. I mean, the, the police were saying, yep, everybody's evacuated. Everybody's off the highway. But she knew differently. Yep. So she, she had texted me or called me or something. I guess back then we probably called more than texted. And she said that, uh, yeah, the, the news is saying everybody's off the highway. Like, they don't even know you're there. You know, what, what, what if something happens? Like, you're out there all by yourself. And I was like, Mom, you know, just relax. I've got food. I got water. I got heat. I'm, I'm fine. Like, I'll be okay. And she said, well, so finally I, I put her mind at ease enough. She said, but make sure you call first thing in the morning and, t- and tell them to come get you. And so that was my agreement was I, I told her that uh, I'd, I'd call first thing in the morning. And to the, to the best of my knowledge, I was the only person on that highway for the second night. Yeah, that had to be kind of a weird feeling. I mean, the first night, you're like one of many, and you're all going through the same thing together, even though you were better prepared than most of them. But that second night, you're all alone. Is that Was that kind of creepy? It was. It was. I wouldn't say creepy, but it was, it was definitely weird. After dark sometime, I, I kind of got the, the urge to go outside and just walk around just to kind of absorb it more. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, it's cold out there, and if something happens, then I'm I'm definitely uh, screwed. So I just decided to stay stay hunkered down again. When I got up Wednesday, it was definitely a lot clearer. It was uh, it was sunny out, and it was I think it was still snowing or blowing a little bit. But um, so I got up in the morning, and like I promised my mom, I called the OPP and and told them you know that I had gotten missed the night before and, and roughly where I was. And so they said, okay, well it'll be a while, but we'll we'll send somebody out to get you. So okay. So I, I can't remember from that phone call how long of uh, time it was, but I started I started noticing, uh, uh, you know, I had cars all around me. I couldn't see that well, but I started noticing something up ahead. So I got out and looked, and it was a bunch of farm tractors with giant snowblowers. They were working their way down the highway, like weaving in between all the abandoned cars and clearing out the sides of the roads and in between them all. So I kind of, you know, I had nothing else to do, so I thought I'd sit there and watch them. And So they slowly made their way back, and, they got close to me and I was, was kind of wondering, you know, what was going to happen when they got to me. And so he, he kind of got back and he, he did a double take and he looked over and saw me. And so he pulled up beside me and he, and he says, uh, I forget exactly what he said at first, asked me if I was okay or whatever. And, and he says, well, he says, once we clear, clear out around you, or he asked me if I was stuck. That's what he said. He said, are you stuck? I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, well, once we clear the snow around you, he said, he says, you, you can go. And I'm thinking to myself, well, where am I going? Like, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't realize I could get through up ahead. So I asked him, I said, well, go where? He says, well, go, go wherever you're going. I said, oh, so are you sure? He said, yeah. He says, I said, okay. He says, there's, there's probably cops all around. He says, if anybody ever stops and asks you what you're doing, just, just let them know that I told you um, to, to make it easier for us to clear it away. That I told you to go, just take your time. So it was, uh, so it was Wednesday. It was almost exactly 48 hours from, from the time I got stopped when I started rolling again. Weren't you surrounded by other vehicles, though? How did you get your big truck weaving in between them? 
Uh, right where we stopped, there was there was actually one of the trucks that passed me when we first got on the 402. He was in the ditch beside me. That you can see that red truck that was in the ditch, the transport truck. So I think because he was in the ditch, nobody, no cars come up beside me. And and again, it was pretty much all single file anyway. So I was able to once the snowplow was cleared the shoulders, and because we were, I think where we were stopped, we were kind of in the middle of both lanes. So the snowplows were able to clear on both sides. Like, um, of, of all the vehicles in front of me. So I just, I had to weave, I had to kind of pick the best route and see which way I had the most room, but I, I made it through. I got, I don't know, probably about five or six kilometers past where I was. And, and, you know, of course I'm going slow cause I had to go around all the cars and, and I could see two OPP officers. I'm not exactly sure what they were doing, but they were up underneath of a bridge. And, you know, as soon as they heard the engine, they, they, they probably thought I was a snowplow at first and, or a snowblower. And as soon as they realized it wasn't, they did a double take. And, and as soon as they saw that, they come walking down that hill, like with authority, almost like getting ready to not slap the cuffs, cuffs on me, but that's kind of the way I felt. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing here? Right. It's exactly. How, you know, where'd you come from and what are you doing? And, and, uh, so I don't know if they thought I was stealing the truck or what, but so he come over and, and asked me, you know, what, what, what are you doing or where are you coming from? And, so I told him the story about the, the, the snowblower and he said, all right, and he's you know, kind of hesitant about it, but he says, you know, he says, he made it this far, just take your time. And, and, you know, there's cars all over the place up there. Just take your time and, and weave your way through. And I said, okay. So I carried on my way. Obviously, since you're going from Canada, you're going into Michigan, you've got to go through customs. Yes. What was involved with that? Um, before customs, I, I got to the, uh, the to- there's a toll booth where you have to pay to cross the bridge and, I remember, I remember rolling up to there thinking, you know, this guy hasn't seen anybody for a couple of days. And if, and the other thing was, I wasn't even sure if anybody would be there because, you know, there's no traffic. So why would they would even be there? Right. So I, so I pulled up to the toll booth and the guy was looking at me pretty funny, but he, he never said a word, took my money and, and away I went. So the customs, um, anybody that's never crossed the border, they're, they're very, some, some of them are very professional. Some of them are just, you know, as they should be professional because they're, do, you know, it's an important job, but some of them are just like your, you're just like your buddy type of thing on the street there, you know, they joke around and they, and they talk to you like you're normal or whatever. But some of them are, are very, very serious. They, you know, they're right to the, right to the, the point and they, they don't joke around. They don't ask anything other than business. And, and that border, that border, especially I've heard it's a training border. So, so they're more, they're even more that way. So, um, I, I, I didn't know what to expect when I pulled up to the customs booth. And so I rolled up there and, and rolled my window down and shut the truck off and he opens the window and he lit, he says exactly to me, he says, where the fuck did you come from? <laughs> and that just, <laughs> that just threw me. Cause like I said, they, they never joke around. They never swear. And, uh, so, so I explained to him, to him, him, the story. And, uh, he said, he said, you know, you've been, you've been stuck there for two days. I said, yeah, I was on the highway for two full days and. And he asked me a couple other questions and he, and he basically said, well, he says, it looks like you've been through enough. So you're on your way. So I left and I finally made it to the customer two days late. Yeah. It's ironic. You mentioned the customer wanted you there early that first day and you end up being two days late. What was their reaction? You don't actually see anybody at that customer. It's just a, we used to, we just, we dropped the trailer in the door and take, and take the other one out. So they, I'm sure when I called dispatch on the first day, they, they were notified of what was going on. Plus, it was pretty snowy there too. So I'd say you had a pretty good excuse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Couldn't, mm-hmm. didn't have much choice. <laughs> <laughs> so now you had to turn around and go back, mm-hmm. but 
wasn't the highway kind of still clogged with cars? Yeah. So I got to the customer and I can't remember where, I can't remember who told me, but I wasn't even thinking. Uh, they said that, you know, the 402 is not open still. And I said, like, oh yeah, just, you know, not even thinking about that. Was my, my focus was getting off the highway. And <laughs> so I ended end up, there's a truck, truck stop in Mary's, Marysville, Michigan. And I, I had to sit there for three hours before the highway was open. I could cross and go back. So three more hours with nothing to do. Yep. And I guess at that point I was uh, used to it. But <laughs> so then I, then I got across and in the 402, like I, I'm actually shocked that they, they, they even opened it that early. Like it was, it was that, that icy conditions that I had in the 403 in the cur then there's a lot of curves around Sarnia. And I, and I remember, you know, I was taking my time. I'm thinking, man, it's just, it wouldn't take much for somebody to slide out and go in the ditch on this road. And, and like I said, I was, I was surprised that it was open, but I, I wasn't stopping. It, it seems like it would just take forever to get the highway open again because all the abandoned cars, I mean, all these cars are sitting here. The, the drivers, the owners of the cars are nowhere to be seen. You know, they're safe somewhere now. And I'm sure they're thinking, wow, how, when can I go back and get my car? But it just seems like such a huge project. Yeah, it would have been, uh, the towing companies would have been definitely busy. And in, in, in that part of it, I'm actually... I'm actually glad that I didn't get evacuated because I think it would have been a very frustrating and situation trying to, because the other thing was, is what I heard that people didn't know where their cars were. You know, they took, they took the driver to the church somewhere and their cars were wherever. And so I heard it was kind of a nightmare trying to get back to their vehicles. Were their cars mostly still on the highway or did they, did the cars get towed? By the time I got back, they were, they were definitely cleaning them off. There was still a bunch still on the highway, but, when I was going back and, and that's the weird part, like I said earlier, going, going eastbound, there, there wasn't, so I don't know whether they started on that side first or what it was, but uh, you know, I don't remember, like I didn't have to weave around any cars going all the way, all the way home. Mm -hmm. There was cars and trucks in the ditch still, but not on the road. Mom must've been pretty glad to see you. Yep. She was pretty happy when I got off that road for sure. <laughs> this happened back in 2010. Yes. Have you seen anything like this happen again since then? I've been through a couple of storms, probably just as bad. Um, there was another one, probably 2012. I was going to uh, Holland, Michigan. That one, I was I was behind a car or an SUV, I guess it was, and, and we couldn't see the road, like we couldn't see nothing, and just taking our time. And, and I remember seeing something. Well, the taillights was kind of funny, and, and I thought, what are they doing? And I realized, oh, that guy, that guy just went in the ditch, and, it, and I didn't know it. So I thought, okay, I guess, guess I better not follow him anymore. And, I was literally driving down the road and I'd hit the rumble strips and I'd have to look out my side window to see kind of which, which side of the road I was on to see which way to go. And actually that trip, that trip there too, I made, I finally made it to, to Michigan and the, my headlights were probably like the size of a toonie each. It was all that was, was showing. And I got there and it was, it was automotive stuff and you had to call into the, the dispatch uh, whenever you got there. And I, so I called in and again, this is another funny one. It was a woman that I'd never heard swear before. And, uh, so I called in and I, and I said to her, I said, yeah, it's Todd. And, you know, I, I made it, to, or I made it, I think I said, and she says, you made it where? And I said, I made it to Holland. She goes, how the fuck did you make it there? She said, everybody else is in the ditch. <laughs> so I've definitely driven through a couple of other, uh, storms that were just as bad, but didn't, didn't get stopped. Thankfully. If there's any way of getting through a storm, it sounds like you find a way. Yep. Usually. <laughs> and it's kind of funny too. The, I can't remember if it was later that, that, that week. In 2010 or the or the next week, I was going the same direction, and I was kind of I was kind of noticing the same conditions. 
and I stopped in London. There's an actual truck stop and I parked and my dispatcher at the time was, he didn't know how to take him. He, you know, sometimes he'd call him and he'd be like, ah, no problem. And other times he'd be, you know, why would you do that type of thing? And so I called him and I said, yeah, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm parking at the truck stop cause the, you know, it's snowing pretty good. And, and he had, he had some things to say. And, and I told him, I said, you know what? I said, I spent two days on the on, stranded on the highway. If I'm going to get stranded in the storm again, I'm going to be at a truck stop. So he said, okay. <laughs> I sat there for, I don't know, a couple hours and it, and it cleared up that time. So I, I went on my way. So you already carried extra supplies, mm-hmm. but did going through this, did it change any of your practices, any of your driving routines? Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll be quicker to pull over, I guess, if, if I am in that. Uh, of course, just telling you the story I just told you, I guess it's not really true, but, <laughs> but now like the, the company I'm with now, um, they, they really push, you know, if you're not comfortable or if, you know, the, your, the the equipment in your life is more important than trying to get a load there. So now, maybe not right away, but now, I'll, I'll, you know, I would stop a lot sooner now than I would have back then, probably. Yeah, driver safety has to be the priority. Yes, yeah, and it's uh, and it's very it's very stressful and tiring driving through that stuff. So I'm getting too old for that. <laughs> I would think sometimes when you're driving and you see the conditions start to deteriorate, does it kind of go through your mind? Uh oh, here we go again. It definitely does. Yep, it's. I've been in a couple situations where it goes through my mind, I guess. But um, I think it was last winter. We had a really bad storm, and I got a my pickup truck's four by four, and and I was I was still heading to the yard. I was going through drifts that was hitting the bumper, and another guy called me, another driver, and he said he said because he he knew where I was going, and and again I didn't have much weight, and he called me and he says yeah he says you might want to call in and not go anywhere because it's it's pretty bad out here. So thankfully uh, that day I decided I'm not going anywhere. So. <laughs> I'm glad you made it through. I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I made it as well. A total of 600 travelers were stranded for as long as 48 hours. Seven nearby communities set up shelters, and a lot of local residents even opened up their homes to some of these travelers. Sadly, there was one person who died. On the first night... 41-year-old Neeland Rumble, who worked as a security guard, was on his way to a security job at a solar farm that was just a few hundred yards or a few hundred meters away from where his car was stuck in a snowdrift. At the time, he was not carrying a cell phone, and he wanted to call his parents and then just walk the rest of the way to his job. He got out of his car and started walking toward a nearby farmhouse, but he never made it. His body was found in a snowdrift the next day. Police believe he became disoriented in the severe whiteout conditions, and he died of hypothermia. If you like hearing stories about severe weather, you might like episode 70 with my guest Aaron. He was in Thailand when the huge tsunami happened in 2004. Here's a short clip from that episode. I look out and I see this wall of white water, you know, really far away. But I see this wall of white water and we've never had any surf in these beaches. It's always been absolutely calm. And I said to Joe, you know, do you guys, do you guys get surf here? This I've, I've never seen anything like this. Check this out. And his face immediately dropped and he said something's not right we this isn't right 
he lived there. He was like a climbing guide and a, and a local, and he knew instantly that something wasn't right because he'd never seen anything like this and knew that that shouldn't be happening here. If you haven't heard that episode, it's titled "Aaron Survived a Tsunami," and we have a couple of voicemails. First, I heard from Jose, who listens to "What Was That Like" while he's working as a tattoo artist. Hi, Scott. My name is Jose. I'm originally from Brazil, but I've been living in Sydney, Australia, for six years now, and I'm a tattoo artist. One fun fact I want to share with you is that your show, your voice, is probably the background of 90% of the tattoos I've done. After I discovered your show, I couldn't really go back to music. I was just listening to the same things over and over again. And when I found what was that like? Uh, it just gave me the perfect amount of entertainment without taking my concentration off.、Um, the stories that your guests present and the way they tell it、um, is just the perfect level of distraction for me to work and still zone out without getting bored. So thank you so much for all the effort that you put into, and、uh, keep up the good work. If you want to check out Jose's work, which is pretty amazing, by the way. You can see it on his Instagram, and his username there is Gordotaub. That's G-O-R-D-O-T-A-U-B. I'll link that in the show notes. If I ever get another tattoo, I might just have to make a quick trip to Sydney for that. And we also heard from Sandra. Hi, my name is Sandra. I'm calling from a small town in California. I just wanted to comment on episode 101 with. I cannot remember the young man's name. Sorry,、um, on the, he was being held、um, by knife point. Anyhow, and he didn't. My point is, he didn't hear the, the gentleman come in or the commotion because he had his his earbuds in or his earpods or whatever the heck they're called. And it just reminded me, kind of, that I need to be more aware of my surroundings. I'm a custodian at a school district, and I often work by myself. And I, it gets dark out, and I always have my earpods in. I'm always listening to. Podcast all day long, and I never thought I may not hear somebody coming up behind me, or you know, any of that kind of thing. So, thank you for for having that story aired. As now, I'm going to definitely keep one of them out so that I can hear surroundings and what's going on, or you know, all that stuff. So, thank you. Your your, your show is amazing. I love it. I'm completely addicted, and I can't wait for the next episode. Thank you, Sandra. And the episode Sandra was referring to was episode 101, titled "Garrett was held hostage at knife point." And yes, being aware of your surroundings is very important. If you have a comment about the podcast or a particular episode or anything really, just record a memo on your phone and email it to me. Or you can call the podcast voicemail line at seven two seven three eight six nine four six eight and leave a message there anytime, day or night. Because it's never answered by a human. I seriously would love to hear from you, because you know what? Out of all my listeners, you're my favorite. Okay, so now we're at this week's listener story, and it's from someone you've probably heard me talking about because I listen to his podcast all the time. This story came in from Jordan Harbinger. He's the host of the Jordan Harbinger Show, and he talks to interesting people all the time. So the story you're about to hear from him, he gets these kind of stories from his guests, many of whom you've probably heard of. You can find his show by doing a search on your podcast app for Jordan Harbinger, 
or at his website, jordanharbinger.com. Jordan's story is about a scary incident he had in Mexico City. Stay safe, and I'll see you in one week. That's right, just one week from now, because I've got a special bonus episode coming out on Friday, November 4, one week from today. See you then. In the year 2000, which sounds like the future, but is really the past, I was a young kid who had no money but wanted to travel around all the time, of course, like many young kids. So I went to Israel, and there was an uprising, and my parents were freaking out every day. So I went backpacking in Egypt for a while, and they freaked out even more because I couldn't go back. So I finally... I left in the middle of a college semester, and I couldn't just rejoin my university, so I headed down to Mexico to take some Spanish classes, kill some time until the following semester, and of course, I had nowhere to stay, so I found a place through friends of friends of friends on the roof, literally on the roof of these old people's house in Mexico City, and this wasn't in a normal neighborhood. It was kind of like this, a lot of the houses were unfinished cinder block There wasn't a whole lot of public transport around. There were these buses that would take you somewhere for a buck. And occasionally, but very rarely, a taxi would drive by. And one day, about 8 p.m., 7 p.m., I was going to meet a friend of mine down in the center of Mexico City. And I decided, you know what? I'm dressed nice. I'm going to take a taxi. I don't want to take the bus and walk and be all dirty. So I flagged down a taxi. It took me a while, but I got kind of lucky and one drove by. And I didn't have any cash. And so I told the driver, hey, I need to go to the ATM. I only have a credit card. And he said, no problem, no problem. Now, this is Mexico City. I wanted to go directly to the center right near the presidential palace. It's called the Zocalo. Every driver knows where this is. Well, the taxi driver's driving further and further away from this. And that was weird to me. Mexico City is shaped like a bowl. If you go up, you're going further away from the center. If you're going down, you're going towards the center. Essentially, the whole city is sinking. So it's real easy to navigate by sight when you're going to the center anyway. And I knew we were going the wrong way. So finally, I asked him and I said, where are we going? And I thought, you know, maybe there's traffic, maybe there's an accident. But he said, I'm going to ask my friend for directions. Now, this was a major red flag because this is like a cabbie in Washington, D.C., saying he's going to ask for directions when you want to go to the White House or a New York cabbie having to ask for directions to take you to Times Square. Just didn't add up, didn't make any sense. And this is before mobile phones. So I wasn't scrolling Instagram or social media and distracting myself. I was looking out the window and worrying if I was about to get kidnapped. Now, my brain's thinking, well, you've never been kidnapped before, so why would you get kidnapped now? And I realized that was a logical fallacy. And I started to think, what if I am getting kidnapped? What if this guy's taking me to the proverbial place where nobody can hear you scream? I don't really want to do that to myself. You know, I got, I got a, a whole life ahead of me. What is going to happen? So I told him to just let me out. He said, no. I told him to drive me back to where I was and I would pay him. And he said, hey, I thought you said you didn't have any cash on you. And I was like, damn, of course, I, had to let, I should have played that one closer to the vest. And that's when I realized I'm either going to get robbed. You know, people are going to get in the car and take me around or I'm going to get chopped up into little pieces or something like that in a basement. I don't want to find out which one of these it is. And I tried to get out, but the door locks actually sunk below flush with the door handle, and I, and I couldn't get the door open, and I thought, this is actually a kidnap mobile, intentionally or not. The doors won't open. I can't get the door open at all. I can't unlock it myself. So uh, the driver kept going. I kept trying to figure out ways to finagle to get out. He kept sort of acting friendly, but a little agitated because he knew I was agitated, and 
I knew something was up because if somebody wants to get out of your car that bad and you're not up to something, you let the creep out of your car, but he would not go for it. Finally, he stops in front of this cinder block house and it's really looking bad. This is a really rough area. There's no street lighting. The roads are really awful. And I'm thinking this is, this is about as, so this is sort of a bad neighborhood, right? This is not a place where happy, productive people live and work and play. And I was sitting behind him and he didn't really notice that I slid from this behind the passenger seat to behind the driver's side. I put my arm between him and the door quietly. And I said, don't get out of the car. Keep driving. I don't want to get out here. Go back to a place that has better lighting. And he said, this is my friend's house. Relax. I'm just going to ask for directions. Now, remember, again, pre-mobile phones. He couldn't call anyone to ask for directions. He couldn't get directions online. He also couldn't warn anyone that he was coming in advance. So I figure he's going to run out, go to the house, get a couple of thugs. They're going to get in the car with me. And that's the best case scenario. Uh, The worst case is they drag me out of the car and nobody ever hears from me again. So I told him again in no uncertain terms to def- to get out of here. You know, we are leaving. We are not getting out here. Instead, he made a fast one for the door. And again, remember, I had my arm between him and the door and he didn't make it out of the car. I was 20 years old. I worked out twice a day and I ate carne asada nonstop. He was 50 something years old or even older. And he sat in a cab all day, maybe eating the occasional burrito or rice bowl. And he was not in good shape. There was a physical altercation. Uh, He ended up losing that physical altercation. Uh, He got choked out, basically, by me from the back seat. Still couldn't get the car door open. Pushed him out of his driver's side door. Tried to drive. Guess what? Stick shift, 1968. Not only can you not drive that if you don't know the trick with the clutch and the shifter and all that stuff. It's an old car. uh, And even if you can drive stick... You're freaking out. You're vibrating at about uh, 1,000 RPM or whatever your wrists and hands are doing at that point with all that adrenaline. No way was I going to figure that out at that moment. Took the keys and threw them. 2020 hindsight should have kept the keys, but nothing ever came of it. Threw them, ran, 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 ran until I couldn't run anymore and I got to a main road and a couple stopped and picked me up. Now, they didn't want to pick me up. I looked like a crazy person, but I was wearing Banana Republic chinos and a nice blue dress shirt that I had soaked through with sweat. I had fake blonde hair. I was 20, forgive me here. I had fake blonde hair. Finally, someone stopped and said, what's going on? And I said, I got kidnapped. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, get me out of here. And they're like, I'm not letting you in the car, you sweaty gringo. So finally, I offered to ride in the trunk of a car. And uh, they didn't make me do that. They let me sit in the back seat and they offered to take me somewhere. I said, take me to the police, which is when I got a nice sort of tongue lashing about how the police are probably in on any kidnapping scheme that's going on in the area. And also, where's that cabbie? Is he still alive? If he's not, you could be in deeper trouble than you think. And I thought, these are all very valid points. So the guy wouldn't take me home. He didn't want to know where I lived. So he took me to a metro station. And that night, I packed up all my crap in the middle of the night and got the first bus real, 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 real early. Uh, Spent most of the time at the bus station real early, moved to a different city and never went back. Uh...